Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other open source projects at swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. Today we want to talk about all sorts of things. All sorts. So much. So many different things. All the things. Uh, one of which, hey, there were a few announcements uh, last week by the time you listened to this. Yeah. Fancy new iPhones and... Um, There's a Swift version with a notch in there uh, just for you. Yeah. Swift uh, four dot notch. Four dot notch. Um, but legitimately, there's all sorts of uh, fun things for us to uh, to learn about and to develop for now. Yeah, yeah, pretty interesting uh, announcements, I guess overall. Right um, now, unlike what we just said, there isn't actually a separate Swift version for iPhone ten. But uh, it's you know, look at the bright side. It's the same Swift version that you know and love, Swift 4, which uh, is now on more devices. Yeah. And uh, so the, the real news from those announcements is that Xcode 9 is in GM. And by the time you listen to this, it will be on its way out in the final release. Yeah, that's the real news. It's what the press and everyone in the world is raving about. Let's <laughs> go 9 GM. It's, it's all that matters. <laughs> right. And uh, with that is uh, obviously uh, Swift 4, which is presumably the, uh, quote, final version of Swift 4. But is it? It's unclear. It's, it is unclear. Um, in the days since the XCO9 GM uh, seed came out, there have been a few snapshots made uh, for Swift 4 in the Swift 4 development branch. Um, and that's a little confusing to me, right? Is Swift 4 part of XCO9 GM the, the official Swift 4.0? Or is it provisionally official <laughs> until, until uh, the release candidate is, is cut? Um, presumably sometime next week. Yeah, w- one thing that's always been slightly unclear to me about Xcode GMs is like if there are ever actual changes between the GM and the final release. Um, I, I feel like sometimes maybe there are, sometimes there aren't, but I don't think we ever get like actual release notes for uh, like the delta between GM and release. We get like some kind of final release notes, but... Yeah, and oftentimes the build number for Xcode is exactly the same between the GM and the release candidate, but not always. Right. Uh, so my assumption here is that um, the Swift 4 version and 3.2 version included in uh, Xcode 9 GM, assuming that nothing major goes wrong with the Swift version included in there is going to be the exact same build that's included in the release. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, since Apple is is so transparent about this stuff, uh, we'll, we'll probably never know. Yeah. Well, we'll know when, when the release can't <laughs> comes out, I guess. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I... I w- Obviously, don't expect any proposals to sneak in. <laughs> just uh, just bug fixes, minor things, probably crashes, etc. So, yeah. Although I think there is a Swift four point one branch already. I think I saw some some things here and there references to Swift four point one, uh, but I'm not sure if things are actually like rolling 
into mm-hmm. It's that. also possible that the 4.0 development branch will be maintained for um, patch releases. Mm-hmm. So that's that's probably yeah. the most likely. And if uh, if last year is any indication of what how things will proceed, then we would get like a Swift four point one like in the middle of next year or something. Like Swift three point one. Well, it came out in like maybe not the middle, but like spring, like March, April, or something. Yeah, definitely like several months after uh, the Dotto release. Yeah. We'll see how uh, the development cycle goes for for Swift five, really, because that might impact, um, you know, when when the breakdown of uh, the Swift five goals is worked on, and mm-hmm. when things that are suitable for a four point one release uh, would be out. Yeah. Uh, now, as part of the four point one release branch, we're likely to see uh, some interesting proposals that were accepted and even implemented before. 4.0 was released, uh, but weren't able to make it to that release branch. Um, so looking forward to a handful of really exciting new features. Yeah, I think the thing I'm most excited about is probably uh, Proposal 185, which is synthesizing equatable and hashable conformance. Uh, so you can find that proposal uh on the Swift Evolution uh, repo and site. There's uh, an implementation that's up and pretty sure it's being updated uh, somewhat regularly with, with feedback. But yeah, basically, um, you know, very similar to how the codable stuff works. You know, if all of your, uh, if all the members of a type are codable, then that entire type can be codable. So if all members are equatable and hashable, then you can get a default implementation uh, of both of those. So instead of manually writing uh, your equal equal function, uh, for example, uh, which is pretty tedious, but more importantly, error prone, because when you go update, let's say you have a, a person type with a name and a birth date, etc. When you go add something else, then you also have to update this equality function, which is easy to forget and you get no errors about that. So by default, the what the compiler synthesizes here is uh, just comparing uh, every single member. So if if you only need to compare like a couple properties out of your type, then you'll have to still override this for custom behavior. Now, one one thing that as uh, part of the um, Swift guidelines that's mentioned is that equality should um, mean that any value observable from a consumer's standpoint uh, that appears to have identical values should be substitutable uh, for any two given equatable items. I'm paraphrasing here from memory, so it might not exactly be how it's worded. Mm -hmm. Um, But an important distinction here is that some internal or some lower access control level members of a type uh, that aren't exposed to any consumer of that type shouldn't be involved as part of the quality comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, say you have a stored property uh, that's really just um, caching an internal uh, state or an internal um, uh, uh, computation from uh, your person struct, right? Like 
for example, say it was very expensive to cal- calculate the age of a person from a, from a birth date. You might imagine a stored property on that person's truck um, where you've you've cached that so that subsequent accesses to like a get age or calculate age function mm-hmm. um, would, would refer to that stored value. Now that's equatable, right? Um, but you wouldn't want your equal equal implementation to incorporate it. Uh, because what if one version has it cached and the other person element doesn't? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you know if this proposal considers access control level when synthesizing the quality and, and hashable uh, implementation? Yeah, after a quick scan and uh, just like a find F search, I don't see anything about access control, actually. So that is definitely one thing to consider. And I'm not sure if that's come up on the mailing lists at all, actually. Yeah, that seems to be somewhat problematic. Also, you probably wouldn't want to compare computed properties in some cases. Um, right, which is why I think this only considers um, right uh, stored properties. Right. Does it explicitly call that out? Stored properties only? Yeah, yeah, it does do that, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's possible that, uh, you know, it, this was discussed and it, it just isn't... Um, enough of an issue mm-hmm. to consider. Yeah. Yeah. No no matter what, if um if you do need to override this, you always can. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like they can only do so much here with the information they have to synthesize these things. So like I think it's all about having providing a sensible default and then being able to opt in to override this. Because another thing could be let's say all the objects that you're comparing have uh, a UID, then you could shortcut equality by only comparing that single property. And, you know, that'd be a lot more efficient than like comparing, I don't know, say 10 properties on some objects. So Yeah, but then it's really uh, the library author's responsibility to ensure that um, that UID uh, fully uh, satisfies the requirements of equality. Right, right, because you could cheat and have, say, some different values, but that still have the same UID, mm-hmm. um, and then that doesn't satisfy the requirements of of the equality uh, constraints. Right, uh, and then the hashable part of this mm-hmm. um, seems to really just do a bitwise um, XOR on all the hash values for all the stored property members. Yeah. So you might also want to enhance that. In previous episodes, we've talked about the SIP hash algorithm. Um, you might want to do something similar to what you just mentioned, where if there is a single identity uh, mm-hmm. property, or sometimes you, you have a composite identity property, right? And like yeah. say there are only two stored values that uh, that represent uniqueness or mm-hmm. identity, uh, then maybe you just want to hash those. But you always have the option to implement it yourself. Yeah, so good thing to keep in mind. I feel like for most cases, um, and particularly, you know, what comes up in Swift development I've seen is um, just creating a ton of like lightweight structs for different reasons. And maybe you don't always need equatable and hashable for some of these lightweight types. But when you do, I think what's going to be synthesized is probably reasonable, probably what you want in a majority of cases. Um, yeah, and then you can optimize as needed or override as needed. Yeah. One more thing I want to say about this is that some people have already taken to 
automatically generating their um, mm. equatable and hashable implementations using tools like sorcery. Mm-hmm. And so I I really just see this as, um, you know, the more Swift gets full-featured, uh, the less, hopefully, we need uh, third-party tools around it to automate some of the developer experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a prime example. Um, and that's actually one of the main selling points of Sorcery. And Sorcery does a lot more than just auto-generating hashable and equatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's one of its uh, first pitches in the readme is really saying, like, well, it's error-prone to maintain equality. What if you add a stored member but forget to update this implementation? And it's nice to see that uh, Swift is going to get native support for this. Yeah. But even then in Sorcery, you don't, you still just have to keep rerunning this uh, this tool to generate things, right? Yeah, uh, it's just like Swift, where you have to keep rerunning the compiler <laughs> to get your output out. It's such a pain. It is a pain. Yeah, yeah. hate that. If only things could <laughs> just be automatically compiled. All right. Um, yeah, I think the final thing here is that I think we're going to continue to see more of this type of proposal. Um, it's like Codable, and now this one where the compiler is just synthesizing all this code for you. And hopefully we'll get to a point where we can just write as little code as possible in the future. So you mentioned that uh, you think we'll see more of this. Do you you have other um, areas in mind that could be automated in this way? Uh, Not off the top of my head, actually. There may have been other... Oh, actually, there is one. There was an old proposal uh, about synthesizing... um, It was for enums having like an all cases property. So like currently, if you want to iterate over every case in an enum, for example, then you have to like provide that that list manually. This proposal, it was in the Swift 3 era and got deferred because of time constraints. And it hasn't been like rehashed, pun intended, uh, to... Uh, you know, it, it hasn't been re-reviewed or brought up again, but that's a another big one that stands out to me. Yeah, I'd lo- love to see that implemented. Yeah. Um, there's some other niceties around that too, not just generating all cases. Oh, generating like a count as well, like total count. So yeah, it's definitely some, some other opportunities there. Another that comes to mind is automatically generating the Linux main um, file that's used on Linux for unit tests, um, which is another main use case of sorcery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more of those things. Really, Swift compiler team, look at sorcery and see if there are ways that we can automate those things. Yeah. You know, Boris always says that closed source is best source, but I think no source is best source. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Uh, what else can we look forward to as part of... Um, Kind of the most immediate Swift 4.1 or 4.0.1 uh, improvements. Uh, there's another proposal on uh, improved pointers, which it looks like the title has been updated now to um, add missing pointers or let's see, unsafe mutable raw buffer pointer, add missing methods, adjust existing labels for clarity and remove deallocation size. Um, This is from Kelvin Ma and uh, 184. Um, So it's another, we've seen um, uh, some other improvements in this area with like the, uh, there's some previous proposals about the unsafe pointer API and some refinements there. So this is another one to 
um, really, uh, yeah, refine these a bit more. Yeah, there were changes um, a few months back uh, regarding the, the the method names and um, how generics play into the unsafe yeah. family of uh, pointer APIs. And that will be in Swift 4, I think. 4.0? Yeah, it was at least accepted. Perhaps it wasn't implemented. Um, yeah, it's my understanding that uh, uh, since the review period was actually right up until September 7th, mm-hmm. And the PR for the implementation has not yet been merged. Uh, this is something we'd see in 4.1. Right. Uh, yeah, I meant the uh, the previous. Oh, the, yes, the, the previous one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think some methods were renamed, like the, the allocate method was, was renamed, uh, if memory serves. Uh, so, yeah, this is something that we used to see a lot more in the Swift 3.0 days, uh, the um, famed... Erica Sedun family of proposals that just kind of aligned a lot of slight differences between very similar APIs. And I guess it really makes sense that the unsafe pointer family of APIs didn't really get that same treatment because it's it's less frequently used. Just looking on the Swift Evolution uh, status page site now, if you search for unsafe, uh, including this new proposal, there are eight uh, that deal with the unsafe pointer APIs. So that's quite a bit of refinements, actually. Right. It's not too surprising, though, because um, it's it's the part of Swift that tries to break down some of the guarantees that Swift has. Yeah. And so by uh, nature, it is exceptional. Yeah. So uh, hopefully we'll see uh, these two proposals land for um, Swift. 4.1 maybe in the future. Now, we wanted to take um, a bit of time to look back at some of our previous discussions as well and uh, just add a little bit more commentary um, on on that. So one of those is uh, just in regards to the SWIFT 5 goals, um, ABI stability uh, being a key goal. Um, and, you know, this podcast is really becoming uh, ABI Stability Weekly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we got some some super interesting feedback uh, from Ted Kremenek, um, who uh, just wanted to clarify a few things. We had some questions for him, and uh, we had a very insightful um, chat that uh, we'd like to just share some of the insights from that conversation with you. You know, one of the first questions that we had when we first saw Ted's email announcing the Swift 5 goals, and uh, actually before we get to, to ABI stability, talking about how the Swift Evolution proposal is changing. Yeah. Um, one of the questions we had with the introduction of the requirement that proposals require implementations uh, to, to be considered um, is... You know, was it ever considered that, um, say, a proposal might be accepted pending implementation? This was definitely a question that I had uh, when I first heard about this. And uh, the idea here being that, well, if if a proposal author can first get a rough idea of whether or not what they're proposing has a chance of being accepted, uh, then they can invest the time into implementing it. Mm-hmm. Um and, and we got some interesting feedback from Ted on that. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like it, this this idea of 
approved pending an implementation kind of is the opposite of what they're trying to do here, right? They really, uh, like part of the point is to see um, what the actual implementation is and uh, more importantly, its impact on not only the Swift code base in general, um, how much churn is there in their code base that uh, is potentially risky? Does it involve a bunch of refactoring and some sensitive areas? Um, is there a stability risk basically just within the Swift code base itself? Um, and then outside of that, what's the impact on actual like real world Swift code? Um, uh, case in point, the uh, access control, um, how that impacted code bases or the, the great migration, how that impacted code bases. Uh, those are pretty, um, pretty wide reaching. Um, and so they want, you know, I think the, the Swift team wants to avoid those if it can. Uh, if it's unavoidable, I think we'll see um, some big changes like that in the future, uh, but they definitely want to limit that. That is part of this reasoning behind having an implementation, and there won't be anything that is uh, approved prior to having an implementation. Right. Yeah. Um, another reason apparently is that um, there are effects that are only um, revealed when you actually build something out, right? Uh, even the most thorough of proposal author might miss, say, an implementation detail, uh, or especially when, when it involves the internals of the Swift compiler um, that uh, you might only find out after you've built it. Mm-hmm. So that was another reason. But one thing that Ted made clear uh, in his discussion with us was that um, the core team is sensitive to people uh, pouring in lots of time into building an implementation uh, if there's no chance of the proposal being accepted. Right. And one thing that they want to encourage proposal authors to do is to really kind of um, feel th- what the response to just the general idea of a proposal would be on the mailing lists uh, before filing an official proposal. Mm-hmm. So that should... Uh, address the case of building something that has no chance of making it in. And even on the Swift Evolution repo, there are a couple new labels now that they're attaching to pull requests. And so I feel like they are monitoring uh, all these proposals pretty closely. And um, uh, they'll let you know, I think, if if your idea is just definitely not going to happen. Um, you, you know, you have a proposal, they'll say, uh, th- there's no way this can happen, at least not right now, or maybe ever. Let's revisit this later. And then you don't have to sp- spend all this time on implementing something mm-hmm. that you'll just have to throw out. Yeah. Uh, one one thing that was made clear to me in these discussions was that uh, rather than thinking of the implementation being a requirement to the proposal, you can kind of think of the proposal process being extended in time to also provide feedback as you're implementing it. Mm -hmm. So that what's being accepted isn't just the idea, it's it's the concrete result, Mm -hmm. um, which when you look at it that way, it seems to um, be be very logical in terms of uh, what kind of feedback you want from the community, not just in the abstract upfront just words on paper, but also uh, what the final result looks like. 
Yeah, and that leads us to um, another question that we had about um, a poor implementation and how that would affect the process. And um, yeah, Ted said that you know it's it really it's one of those situations where it just kind of depends on the situation, but uh, it's definitely not going to help if you have. Um, a poor implementation or something that's not sufficiently tested um, and kind of validated. Right. But, you know, we're a community and, and hopefully people can step up um, to, yeah. to to help each other in, in the cases where that if this happens. Yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, the, the point there is if that's the case, then let's work on improving that and getting better test coverage, et cetera, not just saying, Oh, this sucks. Go away. <laughs> Move on to the next. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't think that will happen. Um, and so the next thing um, that we discussed was module stability and kind of how that plays into uh, ABI stability and what to expect there. Right. And Ted really had a great explanation here to uh, compare module stability versus ABI stability. Um, and the comparisons he made mostly had to do with uh, with a concept that many of our listeners here should be familiar with, which is how it compares to Objective C, mm-hmm. where um, the you can think of the the module aspect of it really being the um, the interface. So the equivalent in Objective C would be the header files, the .h files. And uh, if you look at a an Objective C framework, like a .dot framework, you'll see that it has a collection of header files that are copied into the framework, and then there's the there's the binary for the actual framework, and that's very similar to the Swift framework equivalent of the .swift module file being the equivalent to the header files, and then the um, the binary itself also being the the, the binary um, equivalent in Objective C. So you can see ABI stability stabilizing one of those pieces and not necessarily the other. Another comparison along these lines here is that uh, there have historically been changes to um, the Objective-C interface um, that didn't affect the ABI. Mm -hmm. And one example in recent memory is lightweight generics. Yeah. So... um, And nullability annotations. Nullability annotations, absolutely. So... Older versions of the Objective C compiler uh, couldn't parse the lightweight lightweight generics um, that were present as part of Objective C APIs, but they could still parse the the binary just fine because there was no runtime or even compile time impact to these lightweight generics. Um, so it was really just a change in uh, the interface format, uh, the the syntax. Um, and how the compiler reacted to that. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine changes to Swift's interface in the future that wouldn't affect the compiled version, but would still affect the interface and therefore the Swift module component. Yeah, so we can view these uh, these two things separately. They can happen at separate times. And really, I feel like Ted's attitude toward module stability was, it is important, but it's not going to be this... You know, it, it'll come later, and it, it's not going to have this this huge impact. Uh, certainly not as big as ABI stability. Yeah, there's um, there's all sorts of considerations that need to happen for stabilizing the module format. Um, apparently, it hasn't changed much since the inception of Swift, and so uh, it it 
could actually be ripe for revision and improvement. The binary format is one aspect. Uh, the implementation um, could also be revised to be much faster to parse or easier to test or introspect. How methods are inlined is also part of this module format, much actually like uh, how inline code would be in the header file, um, in, a, in a .h file for, for traditional Objective-C framework. So there's this really helped clear things up for me anyway, the, the, yeah. these comparisons to Objective-C and how uh, where the delineation is here between module and binary. Okay, so then in the world where we have uh, ABI stability, but not module stability, and then a later release changes this module file format, uh, what is the impact on right. and clients? I think it's helpful to think of two concrete scenarios here. One is, um, let's say that uh, the module format changes between Swift 4.0 and 4.1. Mm -hmm. um, or I guess it's more useful to think of it once we have ABI stability. So between 5.0 and 5.1. Um, 5.0 ships with iOS 12. 5.1 ships with iOS 12.1. And so if you ship an app for iOS 12 in Swift, and then the OS updates to 12.1, but your app doesn't update, the fact that the module file changed uh, doesn't impact anything. Your app will continue to run with Swift 5.1. Uh, however, if you want to recompile your app against uh, using a Swift 5.1 compiler, uh, then you need an updated version of that module file, which you'll have as part of the Swift compiler. Um, so no impact on runtime, impact on compile time is what it boils down to. Cool. Is there anything else to mention here? Uh, no, not regarding our, our chats with Ted. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, big thanks to Ted for taking the time to answer our questions there. Yeah, and since we're talking about past episodes, um, one correction uh, that uh, was pointed out by Pierre Habouzi, who works on libdispatch at Apple, is that um, uh, I had previously, men previously mentioned as part of the concurrency discussion with Chris Latner that uh, the Corelibs libdispatch was a re-implementation. wasn't um, the same version that's used on Darwin. And that is incorrect. Um, this is a case where I was very happy to uh, be be proven wrong. Um, it is the Darwin source that's part of this CoreLibs project. Where I think my my confusion came in is that um, there are different per platform implementations for some subsystems. One of which is the thread pool mechanism uh, uses pthreads on non-Darwin platforms. I think I probably saw a CoreLibs dev email uh, at some point saying that uh, that component wasn't a requirement to uh, to, to work on Darwin, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because the pthread implementations are different as well on Darwin and non-Darwin. And what Pierre Habouzi pointed out is that, um, you know, the thread pool implementation is just one part of uh, the, the libdispatch project, right? It's not, uh, there, there's a lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. He also mentioned that there is a possibility for um, the thread pool implementation to be rewritten on non-Darwin to share the same implementation as the Darwin side of things. Uh, but it's something that he had started on, but um, 
uh, he started on that before joining Apple, and it's something that's still something he'd like to do, but uh, hasn't been prioritized for the time being. So I just wanted to to share that uh, uh, thread. This is all on Twitter. Um, we'll share a link in the show notes so that you can learn more about this uh, very insightful discussion. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and it's also easy to get confused because the other Core Libs libraries, uh, XC Test and Foundation, are re-implementations right. completely, right? So... Um, yeah, it's easy to just assume this one was wholesale as well, not just that one piece. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for uh, this episode. Um, you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me, Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. And as always, if you can leave a review on iTunes, uh, we'd really appreciate it. And if ever you want to chat about this, uh, there's the Twitter account, or you can join us on spectrum.chat slash specfm slash swift dash unwrapped. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.